The fewer add-ons you have, the better. That's not to say add-ons don't provide great extra functionality that you may need, but the fewer moving parts you have, the easier the system's going to be to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. Cheaper to maintain, time and cost-wise. From Bright Umbrella, this is Control ClickCast. We inspect the web for you. Today, we're diving into part two of our controlclickcast.com responsive refresh, focusing more on the technical execution. I'm your host, Leah Alcantara, and I'm joined by my fab co-host, Emily Lewis. Today's episode is sponsored by eHarbor, the largest third-party add-on developer for Expression Engine. Whether you're upgrading an old site or building a new one, eHarbor's add-ons make your life easier and your development faster. Need help upgrading your site? EE Harbor offers upgrade services for individuals and agencies. Visit eeharbor.com to learn more. Before we get into to today's episode, we have a really big announcement to make. After eight years and over 200 episodes with amazing guests and sponsors, we are wrapping up the show. Yep. Today, this episode that you're listening to is going to be our last episode. It's been a crazy and fun ride, but after a lot of reflection, we think we've taken the show and its concept as far as it can go. We're so proud of what we built and all the things we learned from our guests over the years, but the reality is our sponsorship, downloads, and engagement have been slowly declining. And a few things like some of our newer social experiments in Patreon didn't attract the type of interest we'd hoped. We had to accept that our show is probably past its prime, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. This is definitely bittersweet. Mm -hmm. But as we thought of what show to best to end our run— What better way to go than back to our roots? Right. So for our older listeners who've been (laughs) with us since the beginning, you know we started this show as the Expression Engine podcast. So we thought it was fitting to end the show with a focus on our website's EE upgrade. So without further ado, here is part two of ControlClickCast.com's mobile-friendly refresh. So we talked about all the planning, IA, content, and visual design in part one of controlclickcast.com refresh. But today we're going to get into the development side and Mm -hmm. the process of getting it launched. So let's start with front end. As I mentioned in part one, one of the reasons why this wasn't sort of a a simpler retrofit is that we just couldn't use an eight-year-old code base. Yeah. There was no way to just, to quote, just throw some media queries in and have this scale for different device widths. So starting with the front end and continuing through the rest of the project, everything else was like 100% rebuilt. Mm -hmm. The part one were the areas where we sort of kept it a simplified pared down process. But yeah, front end was from scratch. And just to offer a few perspectives, because I had to kind of think about this myself. So the original design was about eight years old from our EE podcast days. We did not touch that code base when we rebranded to Control Click. Mm -mm. We, Mm -mm. you know, 
changed type, you know, the font face calls and we changed the logo, but that was kind of it. Yeah. And eight years ago, I hadn't even created our internal starter files framework. I don't even think I envisioned of ever having our own internal framework. Yeah. It was before I incorporated a lot of accessibility features into that framework it was well before I understood speed and performance concerns, the impact of having images, the impact of having third-party HTTP requests, even before I knew how to use a CSS preprocessor like SAS. Mm -hmm. And definitely even before I knew what a responsive site was. We were not talking about mobile or responsive at this point in time. No. So front end had to just be 100% from scratch. It would have been silly to try and make the desktop system work. Right. When Leia was discussing the visual redesign in part one, Leia, you talked about going with a single column layout. Yeah. And, you know, and part of the motivation for that beyond just proper information architecture, priority and branding, a single column layout simplifies the front end. Exactly. There's just less media queries, less little tweaks I need to make at different quote unquote breakpoints. And so that made the front end a lot easier for me. It was also helpful to actually have a framework from which to work. You know, our internal starter files that we've sort of been iterating on with every single project Whenever I use it for a new product, it's at the best it's ever been because it's got all the stuff from previous projects right. in it. So it gave me a really good starting point. You know, essentially, one of the reasons you do want to use a framework to help you get started and up and running faster. So starter files also help that. But aside from only having a single column and having starter files to start with, I do feel like the process of building the front end for this refresh was a more robust effort than my original legacy desktop site build. And what I mean by that is that it's been eight years. I have a lot more knowledge and I know more little details. So I wanted to make sure that the site reflected the best of what I've learned, not just the basics of what I've learned. With HTML, one thing that stands out to me, like I've always had really lean semantic code. That's never been something I've had to like go back and fix. But I did use Aria a little more than I should have Mm. previously. And that was because at the time it was still really new. It was as new as some of the HTML5 semantics that we had in place. So I was using them without the full knowledge of their impact. And so now that I know about them, you know, there are ARIA roles that are redundant to native HTML5 semantics. And that wasn't clear to me years ago, right. but it is now. So not dropping roles in everywhere, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I pretty much did before. I also used section and aside, I think not the way they should have been at the time. And so I right. feel like today how I'm using them is much more semantically accurate. And that's really only something another front-end dev is going to appreciate. But it's one of those things that I think is important. I feel like our podcast should reflect the best of what we have in our arsenals today. Well, and I mean, better HTML is the fundamental of all websites. And Google and other machine readers will appreciate you. Yeah. (laughs) I also feel like my CSS was just generally better 
Obviously, starter files has some better standards than I was working with before. That includes class naming. I've gotten really consistent on my class naming within projects. And so I'm essentially using a lot of the same classes from one project to the other. This makes my coding faster. It lets me inherit, you know, essentially class selectors from pre from starter files a lot more efficiently without having to change the names. And it's just, it's how my mind's thinking today. So again, it just was another reason to not update the existing code base because I don't even know what I was thinking with those class names. They're so far removed from how I'm thinking now, which is much more modularly, much more semantic. I also feel like my CSS is set up for better maintenance, and that's because of SAS variables and mix-ins. There's just less repetition in line with CSS selectors. So these are like just things that have come to our industry in the past couple of years that I'm now able to take advantage of. Right. And then because we just have that one column layout, there weren't a whole lot of alignment issues where I needed two things side by side where I might have traditionally used a float method. There were a few, and for those, I chose Flexbox. I should say I tried Grid, and I tested it in a couple browsers, and it just didn't have the support that I wanted it to have, so I decided on Flexbox. And the best thing about Flexbox, it's like two little lines, and then nice. boom, it's done. And I have it in a mix-in with fallbacks for older versions of IE, and so it's just... It was uh, really simple compared to some of the challenges that building the old legacy desktop sites with positioning and floats. I love Flexbox. And I'm not knocking grid. I'm just saying when I used it where I wanted to, it did not do what I wanted in some of the older browsers I wanted to support. So that's all about CSS. What did you do when you were thinking about performance? Right. Well, something that, you know, as we mentioned in part one, we really weren't even thinking about. I mean, not even slightly no. thinking about during the original site launch. And honestly, when we were having those initial IA content strategy discussions back in 2016, I don't think speed was on our radar either. Nope. But in the three years since those initial discussions, we've done a lot of performance work. So this was a great chance to put all of that into our own site. So I made sure that the HTML was super lean, like more lean, as lean as I could get it. So I spent a little extra time on that. You know, as I just mentioned, SAS uh, giving me a little bit more efficiency in terms of none of those redundant selectors, but, you know, using a mix-in. But also SAS comes with, you know, the really simple option to compress your CSS. I didn't do that in the original site. It wasn't even a thing I thought of. I just had... Big ass CSS files. <laughs> right, exactly. So just using automation tools to compress my final CSS for me also is going to impact the page size, the size of the assets that are being downloaded. Mm-hmm. Original site where we had any icons, we were using sprites, which if you're listening and you don't know what that is, that just makes me feel old. But it's you know where we had a single image with with multiple visuals in it that you would call with background positioning in your CSS. I think people sometimes do that with SVGs these days. Yeah, you can still use sprites. I think it's a matter of I haven't had to in a long time because you and I have really embraced Font Awesome for icons. 
And so pretty much where you're using those, we're using Font Awesome. And because we're using them so much across the design, it's a justifiable call to a third-party resource because we're using it in a lot of places and we're only calling it once. Also limiting uh, HTTP requests. A minor thing is I moved Font Awesome in line with HTML instead of just calling it as an external resource. And I did the same with the JavaScript. Rather than just calling like a scripts.js file from the server, I just have it in line at the bottom above the closing tag. I've been doing that for the past couple years with projects, and it's just a minor improvement to speed issues. And I don't find it any more complicated to maintain. Sometimes getting too modular, like having too many things separated out, you know, gives you its own drawbacks. Yeah, its own headache. Yeah. Yeah. And we had no optimization in HT Access originally, right. like at right. all. Yeah. I think the only thing we used HT Access for was expression engine rewrites, URL rewrites. Yeah, removing index PHP. Yeah. So we added some GZIP compression and expires headers, which are going to help with performance and caching. And so those were just some minor things. And again, because I was using starter files as our framework to get up and running, a lot of this stuff was already in place. And so I didn't have to spend a lot of time adding it. It was more like just customizing what's there. Cool. Let's see. So continuing from there, a couple things changed for me. And I I can't say it's because of the control click cast refresh, but rather just the three years it took us to get from the original conversations to my dev, I just made a lot of changes to how I was coding. For example, I used to use pixel-based media queries. So I'd say, you know, if the viewport is 1024 pixels wide, that would be my media query. And in the three years that I've, that, you know, that it's taken by the time I got to front end, I'm now using M-based media queries. Ah. I also am now using rem units for fonts and sizing. Previously, I pretty much always used M as well as the occasional pixel-based value. All right, so rem from my Googling stands for root M. And what it essentially means is that the value that you assign to a selector attribute is referring back to the root element, the root value. And so if you've seen situations where maybe a child element of something, the font resizes based on the parent element, maybe you increase the width of the parent element and then the font size of the child element bumps up, Mm -hmm. which isn't what you want, then that's due to using M based font sizing. But if you're using rem based font sizing, no matter what I do to the parent element, it's going to stay that size relative to the root. It also, I've read, it makes it super easy if you want to just make a global change to the root value that it cascades through everything. I've never done that ever. So I don't know if maybe I've just approached things differently or it's just meaning it's not a, a feature, a benefit that applies to me, but still useful to other people. But I've never had to do that. So that wasn't my reasoning for going this direction. There were two articles that kind of helped me get to this kind of logic in terms of using REM units that I'll make sure to include in the show notes. 
And I'm using it not just for font sizes, like I just described with the child and parent relationship, but I'm using it for everything. Um, My padding, my margins, width and height, top and bottom. And this has been through potentially three years of testing. So for example, I started using REM for just font sizes. I was like, I don't know what it's going to do to my padding. I don't know what it's going to do to my margin. And I just want to see what's going to happen. I tend to be conservative in my approach to using new tricks or new techniques. I want to really understand what they're doing before I make it part of starter files. But by now, I'm really using it for everything. And a little asterisk next to that is I've only recently, with the Control Click Cast website, used it for top bottom positioning. And so far it seems okay, so I feel pretty good about it. And there might be people listening being like, why are you worried? Well, that's just me. I just, I really like to really understand what I'm doing and see it in action multiple times before I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And then, you know, one other thing that I think is worth mentioning that I spend a little bit of time on that I didn't obviously in the desktop site are tap targets. So you give me a design layer, but then I need to figure out on the front end how to put padding or margin around links to make them, you know, effective tap targets for the touch or mobile touch experience. And it was really important with this design because if you take a look at it, we have lots of group text links. And I wanted to make sure that, that you weren't going to accidentally hit the wrong thing. Right. I believe the, the term is the Fitz law, right? Fitz like- law. Fitz law, it's that's um, in terms of like making sure that there's enough room for people to actually. Fitz law is a predictive model of human movement, primarily used in human computer interaction. So that's that's the formal way to say like, how do we remove the amount of friction from people navigating through the site? Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that is super simple but worth mentioning because it might be something that's easy to overlook. Like you can increase your target with padding really easily, but if you have a group of text links like we do, you also need some margin to like clearly separate the two links that are next to each other. Very cool. And then also another area of the front end that I feel was much more robust this time around compared to the desktop system is accessibility. And I've been doing accessibility work since some of my first jobs working in front end, but it's one of those things that unless you get to work 100% in it, there's always something to tweak or to improve or some new finding that someone has done testing in a screen reader and, and now finds that something is no longer effective. I mentioned earlier, better use of ARIA, limiting those redundancies with HTML5 sectioning elements. Another thing that I wasn't so great at that I did try to put a lot of attention towards with the control clicks cast site was proper use of ARIA hidden true. Sometimes you want to also support that with CSS display uh, selectors or values rather. And sometimes you don't. And so taking a little bit of extra time reviewing where I'm using them and why was a little extra step I did for our site that I hadn't done in the past. And then another thing that I have started doing that I hadn't done back in the day was, I'm not sure how to like elegantly say this, but here's a good example. Every nav element on the site should have a heading in terms of to give it context of what it is. 
And that's primarily for screen readers. It doesn't have to be a visual heading, but a heading that offers context to someone who might be navigating the site with a screen reader. So I made sure that all of those types of elements that needed context had them. So they're in the source code. You don't see them, but they provide context for users that need it. I also added a jump link that we didn't have before and did a lot of testing for keyboard accessibility. And I think there was no accessibility testing with the original design. Mm, I don't mm. even think there were, there were not tools on my radar at that time for what I could use, even if it was a priority. And I guess the biggest thing we did in terms of accessibility is our media player. Yeah. What, again, back to our priority, why are people visiting our website? Yeah. I mentioned this in part one, but the media player we chose is called Able Player. It's a third-party player someone else is building and maintaining. And it was, I took a lot of time to figure out what was out there. And this was the one that I landed on that was the most accessible and had the best browser support. Mm -hmm. It also turned out to be super easy to use. I didn't know that until I had already decided to use it. So I was kind of prepared to wrestle with the CSS to get it to look nice, but it really didn't need all that much. And it scales, in my opinion, for a third-party tool, it scales really great for responsive. It has a great no JavaScript fallback, just your native audio tags, great tooltips, keyboard navigation. So I'm really loving how it turned out and how easy it was to drop into place. If I have more time in the next few months, I'd love to tweak the CSS just a little bit more, but I'm pretty pleased with what we launched with. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like my summary of my front end experience with the site. Again, it's just really being able to use the efficiencies from our internal framework, spending more time on keeping things fast and accessible, mm -hmm. and just leveraging everything I've learned in the eight years since originally building the desktop site. Right. And I mean, if we want to look at a silver lining for all the delays, is that pushing it to this point means like we are leveraging all the things we've learned yeah. and all the latest technologies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we're also now at a mindset of we want to keep the site reflecting the things we're learning. So yeah. we hope to touch it a little more often with little things we're trying or things we know are working and we want to see how it plays out on the site. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about in, in part one that we didn't really have HTTPS on our radar when we decided yeah. to retrofit the podcast site, but it became a big thing with clients, with Google, general wanting to support good security practices as an right. agency. So HTTPS became part of this project, even though we didn't plan for it initially. Right. So we actually went live with HTTPS you know, over a year ago, mm -hmm. so prior to this refresh, but we still consider the entire HTTPS move part of this overall refresh. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, at the time, especially when we first started the podcast, HTTPS was still an emerging standard for non-e-commerce sites. I feel like unless you were an e-commerce site, nobody, nobody had HTTPS. Right. And when we first started taking it seriously, Google had just 
started giving out warnings about how security will affect PageRank. So to help with planning, I contacted our host, Arcus Tech, for some direction. And Nevin Line outlined a few different ways that we could implement HTTPS. We'll link to our episode with Rachel Andrew on some of those details. Mm -hmm. But in the end, because of the simple needs of the site and for some speed benefits, we went with a private certificate combo and have it attached to Cloudflare. Mm -hmm. And really, once you have that bought and configured manually or with the help from your host, like Arcus Tech did with us, the next step really is a simple security audit. So we have a spreadsheet where we outline all the places we need to check. And it's mainly third-party services. Mm -hmm. You know, again, at the time we were implementing HTTPS, it was still a bit of a novelty. So we had to double check if some crucial service we were using served HTTPS Mm because it might not have. And that could have given you mixed content warnings. So then after that, the next major thing is making sure that all the expression engine configuration files, as well as the templates, have URLs that reference Mm -hmm. HTTPS. Or, depending on the service or whatever it was or what that link was, a relative reference, like the double slash. Mm -hmm. So often, like for example, the Google Analytics script has the double slash, which means it will pull whatever protocol you're already serving Mm -hmm. to avoid that mixed content error. What would you say is the average time you spend on these audits and getting this spreadsheet up to date, just as a reference for our colleagues? You know, that it really depends on how complicated the site Mm -hmm. was. So like when we did this for like our college site, that was like about an hour, which Mm -hmm. is that isn't that long, but the larger the site, the more, you know, dependencies it has. So that takes a little bit longer. For a lot of sites, it actually takes less than an hour. So totally worth the time to kind of go through the double checking. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because if you did identify a service that doesn't work with that, then you're proactive in either finding another service, or in one case with one project, I contacted the service and asked if they had timeline for when they were going to serve it. And that actually affects if it's in the next month or the next couple of weeks, then you just tell your client, let's delay this move for another month. And then we still use the same service that you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Right. So doing this kind of audit, make sure that you cross your T's and dot your I's essentially, and be proactive about these types of changes that you have to do. Yeah. All right. So back to your HT access changes. Right. So once you identified everything in your audit and everything's good and you know where to change things, you edit the HTTP access file to redirect all instances of HTTP to HTTPS, you know, and make sure they're also 301 redirect. Oh, right. Yeah. In our relaunch just a few weeks ago, we realized that the directive that we had originally that we added didn't have that nuance, Mm -hmm. even though it redirected just fine. I just didn't specify it was a 301 redirect. And that could affect your Google rankings. And where we're still trying to troubleshoot this, we're thinking this might have affected the way our social media graphics showed because it wasn't a a full 301. This is the real URL to review. Let me ask you this, because uh, when we launched, we also added back the www to our URLs. We had, what, stripped that out previously. Right. So our original URL, like eight years ago, didn't have the www. And then 
when we moved to Cloudflare, and I think this was just a misunderstanding either on how HTTPS works or how Cloudflare worked, or I misunderstood what Arkistec was telling me, but it basically mentioned if we were going to be using Cloudflare that we need to specify the www as our primary domain mm-hmm. instead of removing it. So I switched a bunch of those things around with the the redirect. So now that our main URL has the www. And so when you're making all these redirects, like just make sure you actually know what you're doing <laughs> for like and why why it's happening because that has led to a few problems with our social previews and our URLs a little bit mm-hmm. in regards to that, especially because we also use podcast tracking, download tracking mm-hmm. service, and www.domain.com and domain.com are actually considered two different sites. Mm. So if you don't do your redirects properly, or you don't specify them properly, or you don't specify it's a 301 redirect, like one is the real permanent URL, then you could have a lot of weird issues with your site rendering, with Google ranking, and social previews as well. And speaking of those particular redirects, and this was something that bit me as well, make sure your redirect, your HTTPS redirect is one that your host endorses. (laughs) So, you know, like I'm not an HTTP access expert. So, you know, half the time I'm like HTTPS redirect Google, you know, (laughs) and then you choose what you see and then just copy paste. And when it looks like it works, it's great. But then when it doesn't work, you're like, well, what's going on here? So for example, Arcistack has slightly different syntax than a generic HTTPS redirect because they're just like with the web, like anything in the web, there's more than one way to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's more than one way to do a 301 redirect. There's more than one way to do an HTTPS redirect. So make sure you do the one that actually uh, your host endorses in their knowledge base. So just mm-hmm. use that one. But in our case, too, there was an extra step. Make sure that the HTTPS redirect is one that works with Cloudflare. Right. So it's a slightly different syntax, again, that cloud, because again, our site is being served through Cloudflare now. Even though the, um, all the main stuff is hosted in Architect, then Cloudflare takes it and it's our CDN. And so that was something we actually had to troubleshoot since the site went through there. And we have an episode in our archive, an HT Access Primer, that we'll link to as well in the show notes because there might be some useful information in there if regex and HT Access isn't really like your specialty. My thing. Yeah. And I mean, since it wasn't my thing, like, it took a lot of trial and error before I was like, okay, this is why it's not working. Mm-hmm. I think one benefit of this project taking as long as it did is that when we launched and things weren't perfect, we were like, oh, well, like, we'll fix them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, right, right, right. we'll fix it. It's not yeah. the biggest deal. <laughs> you know, right. at least the site's mobile. <laughs> right, right, right. It's working. Yeah, it's working. Exactly. All right, so let's talk about the final phase of development, the expression engine upgrade. Right. And so like Emily mentioned, you know, the the silver lining of all these delays is that software and technology catches up. Mm-hmm. And since we delayed three years, Expression Engine went up three versions. <laughs> and went open source. <laughs> yes, exactly. So a ton, a ton of changes. We went from EE version 2 to EE version 5. Mm-hmm. But honestly, for specific details on the upgrade, 
listen to our two-part series on our show, CMS Upgrades and Migrations. Yes. I essentially followed all the things we mentioned there to a T, including the CMS audit and the tests related to that. But I will note that this upgrade wasn't as much as a straightforward upgrade, as in like press the upgrade button kind of thing, mm -hmm. as it was a minor rebuild mm. and an import. And the import was to a newer version of Expression Engine 4, and then a traditional upgrade to EE5. And can you explain why that that was the path? Well, part of it is when I was actually hardcore developing to all of this, with all the years that have passed, certain add-ons didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Another thing too, but that might be a good thing because a lot of things were natively added, which I'll go into uh, you know, a bit more detail. But in terms of like the import to EE4, that was because of like the newer stuff that we wanted to use and mm. newer techniques, as well as, you know, as I mentioned, ways to move on from old add-ons. It was EE4 first because that was what it was in the middle of 2018. Uh -huh. And then EE5 got released. Fortunately, the EE4 to EE5 upgrade process was once I had finished EE4 upgrade path, and then a lot of the major add-on developers had a path to EE5. Mm -hmm. So then it was literally a traditional upgrade, like replace the folders, the plugin folders with the newer plugin. Mm -hmm. And then EE4 had a one-click update. So then after I did the replaced the EE4 plugins with the new EE5 plugins, which was, again, replace the folder with the new version, mm -hmm. I just pressed the one-click update to EE5. Nice. Putting you on the spot here, do you think it's possible to do an upgrade from EE 2.5 to 5 and skip 4? It depends on how simple your build is. Mm. So the more add-ons you have, the more likelihood you need to go to 4 before 5. Right. Right. I think so. I think so. But 5 is so close to 4 I mean, it really was that I think that if you were going to do an upgrade path versus an import or minor rebuild, I don't think it was going to be that difficult. But if you're really already as far back as EE2, you're probably already looking at a minor rebuild anyway. So let's talk a little bit about that minor rebuild because it included changes to how we build templates. Right. So part of the excitement of moving to the newest version of Expression Engine was because of that new native functionality. And the native functionality specifically related to layouts mm -hmm. and template routes. And part of the reason why this is exciting is that it allowed for more DRY, dry kind of approach to layouts and making sure you're not repeating yourself in your templates. Like mm -hmm. if I could just have one static page template and specific variables that can just be re reused in one place. So you edit in one place and it applies everywhere. Mm -hmm. That was one of the major things that I wanted to focus on in the new version mm -hmm. that just the pure upgrade path would not allow you to do. Like right. you wouldn't, especially with our priority for like ease of use for ourselves, as well as speed mm -hmm. for the actual site to render using a minor rebuild just made the most sense. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the perk of having such a, a big jump in versions between the original and our current is like you mentioned the native functionality, but you know, we never had too many add-ons to start with, but we ended right. up with even less this time around because expression engine has incorporated 
some of those control panel UX features. Like back in the day, we were using Wigwam and Matrix, and right. Expression Engine now has that sort of native functionality now that we don't need an add-on to create that. Right. And with all this in mind, I want to bring up a question. Our loyal li- listener, Sean Smith. Hi, Sean. He asked, with all this, how long did the upgrade from EE2 to EE5 take? Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, we built the site. So the speed it took to update wasn't short, but it wasn't as long as like older sites that we had to do deeper tech discovery for. Oh, right. We knew what we were dealing with. Yeah, exactly. If you want actual time, I actually looked at our logs under CMS dev, mm-hmm. 35 hours. So that was 35 hours, but in application, if you take that 35 hours between projects and other internal priorities, those 35 hours was spread through five months Mm -hmm. between July to December. To dive deeper on what I touched on with add-ons, Sean also asked, what add-ons did you have no upgrade path and how did you resolve that? Mm -hmm. And kind of already answered that really, if there was no upgrade path, the main thing was choosing something native. Yeah. You know, maybe there didn't need to be an upgrade path because there was a native solution first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And then if that didn't exist, then we'd have to look for a new plugin that does the same thing that is compatible. So specifically, just a few old things that we moved on from. So we used to use Carl Crawley's Adman plugin to track ads, but our sponsors didn't really care. For that? Yeah, no one ever asked for the information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in the end, we were replaced with a free service called PodTrack that gives us more accurate and better analysis of our downloads. And then we gave sponsors the option to add like UTM tags for Google Analytics to mm-hmm. their URLs for their own tracking. And as I mentioned before, like a lot of add-ons we use end up being baked into EE. So some examples of that. There was no need for Lowe's if else when the parse order improved after three major versions of Expression Engine. We used to use Eric Regan's If Contains plugin, and now EE has native containers, contain operators actually, that work exactly the same. Mm-hmm. We used to use low variables, and now we use native template partials. Mm-hmm. We used to use mo variables, but again, native functionality checks now. Mm-hmm. I do think, you know, take a look at the new documentation, see what, what those operators are. And something that Emily touched on earlier um, that affected this decision too, we used to use Minimi in the past to compress our HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into like one concatenated file Mm -hmm. or so. But because we now have new build processes, you know, that compress our CSS and JS before we deploy anyway, there was really no need for it. Right. And then plus Cloudflare or CDN has an option that compresses HTML. So there's no need. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been a while, I feel like, since we've talked about it. So let's just underscore like... The fewer add-ons you have, the better. That's not to say add-ons don't provide great extra functionality that you may need, but the fewer moving parts you have, the easier the system's going to be to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. Cheaper to maintain time and cost-wise. So let's talk about the, you know, so those are like some of the oldies that we moved forward. Let's talk about the new things we used in this install. Right. The stuff that you get with the new system, the new EE5. Right. 
Right. Well, actually, this is old but new. So Andrew Weaver's data grab mm-hmm. has always been my go-to for importing into EE, and this was no exception. Uh, he even worked with EE Harbor to help troubleshoot the next must-have add-on we installed, which is EE Harbor's assets. Mm-hmm. We could have used the native EE file manager, and that was how we used to do it for the past eight years. But assets just makes it easier to organize files and recognize subfolders mm-hmm. without having to create a new file upload path. Like every year we had to create a new file upload path. Yeah, it was like our to-do for the end of the year in December. Yeah. <laughs> and then also we were less organized and we decided we needed to become more organized about our file management with Control Click. We used to have this one giant folder for all social media And now it's organized by date. And Mm. part of the reason why was because we didn't want to create a new file upload path for social media, as well as the MP3s, as well as the transcripts. Well, and also I think the social media was something we added randomly like four years ago when we realized we needed social media. It wasn't even in the original legacy system. Right. There wasn't social cards Mm -mm. a few years ago. So that was a bit of a pain and assets fixed that. Tagger was a plugin that we've always had to tag our posts, and that still existed, and it's straightforward, and it's pretty easy to import into Tagger as well, since it's just plain text separated by commas. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty good. But a really big change for us, and which supports our new design for our transcripts, was bold-minded's blocks Mm -hmm. field type. So that field type allows a more flexible way to showcase our transcripts, as well as embed our sponsor ads in the middle of those transcripts, Mm -hmm. as well as other links and callouts that we want to add and mix into. It used to be just one giant text field. Yeah. And so this reduces the amount. Well, I don't know. I think it makes the transcript look great, which was a huge priority. We talked about that, I think, during part one with discussion about the typography changes that you made to the design. But I do think it adds a little bit of time to our content administration because what we used to have in one big block that we just dropped into a WYSIWYG, or I don't even know if it was a WYSIWYG, it was just text field with HTML. Yeah. We now do have to split that up a little bit, but I think the end result is worth that extra time. Yeah, it's a lot more friendly in terms of the um, the layout options for us and mm-hmm. the type of way that we wanted to render transcripts on a website. So for those in the craft world, it is similar functionality as the matrix fields mm-hmm. with the ability to have multiple field types in one area or content type. So that's bold-minded blocks. And then finally, especially with our focus on performance, Stash yep. by Mark Croxton still remains awesome. And static caching is employed on almost all the pages, essentially. Like the only thing it doesn't really cache are search engine results, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our search results are page search results page. Yeah. And hopefully everyone in the EE community knows about Stash, but we do have an old episode from our archive where Mark talked about Stash and what his process was for developing it and what it does. So we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. All right. So we have talked from top to bottom the entire process of refreshing controlclickcast.com, but we're not done yet. Right. We're done-ish. 
<laughs> but you know, that's something that we strive to tell our clients, but it's also true for our year internal projects. So mm-hmm. website is a living thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're definitely embracing that mindset now more than we have in the past. And perhaps had we been a little bit more, it doesn't need to be 100% to go live, that maybe this might have been faster. But yeah, it's worth it to embrace, like launch with what's there and just adjusting. Heck, it gives us fodder for episodes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. There were a few things we did not go live with, but are on the radar. The print CSS that's in place is as bare bones as it can get. And I'd like to make it awesome, especially for transcript pages. Sitemap XML that's there is basic, but I think it could be better. I've mentioned this on a couple episodes before, but I only have a local service worker in process. I'd like to get it completed and on the live site. And one of the things that this was something Leah had thought about while she was designing, and I said, let's make it phase two, just so front right. end can be a little faster just some subtle CSS animations. Yeah. And I'm also kind of like waiting until we have racial neighbors on the show too, to, to like get, get the best kind of advice for that too. Right. And then once all of those things are in place, clean up my CSS. Yeah. I don't think it's bad, but it's not awesome. So (laughs) that's something that I would like to do. And it's one of those things I almost never get to fully do, and it would be nice to to achieve that. (laughs) Right. And of course, just random fixes here and there. As we kind of mentioned, we have some weirdness with our social media previews. Mm -hmm. So we might need to adjust a few things. Could have been possibly related to that 301 redirect, but well, we just kind of have to wait and see a little bit. Yeah, it could also be our meta tags. One thing I did to our starter files framework within the past year was there. So there are some open graph tags that Twitter will read for its Twitter cards rather than Twitter's tags. So I wanted to get rid of some of the redundancies and it's maybe possible I overlooked something or something like that. Like I want to go back and look at that. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, we want to learn our lesson (laughs) about neglecting the site and make updates to it. Like again, you know, not make everything perfect, but make updates that make sense on a regular basis. So that keeps it relevant and useful. But for example, with one of the ones that I want to play with, like CSS animations that lets us experiment with our own skills. Right, right. Exactly. So that's all the time we have for today. But before we finish up, we've got our rapid fire 10 questions and it's M's turn. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. First question. Would you rather travel to the future or the past? The answer is based on like assuming I get to come back to the present time. So I would like to go to the future and then come back to present time because then maybe I can make changes to improve my future. Jason and I had a long talk about this recently. (laughs) (laughs) So future. Okay. What's the scariest thing you've ever done? Psychologically moving across the country, physically jumping out of an airplane. Oh, wow. Wow. Who was your childhood celebrity crush? I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, (laughs) I think it's a toss-up between Rick Springfield, which for those of you who don't know, he was just so amazing in the 80s, but also Andy Gibb. He was pop artist, the youngest brother of the Bee Gees, and he Mm. was a host of Solid Gold, which was like my favorite show. (laughs) Oh my goodness. What's one of your pet peeves? 
people who don't leash their dogs when mm. in areas where dogs should be leashed. Oh, yeah. Worst. I take a lot of walks and I don't, I'm allergic to dogs. I don't want just dogs touching me and coming up to me. So, yeah. Leash your dog. <laughs> what was your first website? Yeah, I actually didn't get into building websites until my 20s. So it was a portfolio for myself and cool. just, you know, basic emilylewis.com. Or I think it was emilyplewis.com. Cool. What is your favorite time of the day? Mm, probably mid-morning. I think that was your answer too. Yeah, late morning. It can't, yeah, early morning I hate. <laughs> no, I'm not even friendly that time of day. No. What is your favorite place? Home. Aw. <laughs> What's your favorite emoji? You know, I use the thumbs up or the blowing kiss one a lot. Uh, the blowing kiss one to like family, you know, loved ones. Right. What's your favorite charity? I have two and I want to mention two because we're going to have links to them in the show notes. Special Olympics, I've been a big supporter of since high school and have done volunteer work with them for a long time. But since I've moved to New Mexico, the Animal Humane New Mexico, I think, is just one of the best animal nonprofits and organizations here in town. They're just amazing. Very cool. Finally, sweet or savory? Savory. Very cool. And that's all the time we have for today. Hope you learned something to help your own side projects. Control Click is produced by Bright Umbrella, a web services agency obsessed with happy clients. Today's episode would not be possible without the support of this episode's sponsor. Many thanks to EE Harbor, as well as our hosting partner, Arcus Tech. And an extra shout out to Gorin, our sound editor, and Joseph, our transcriber. They've both been the best podcast partners to work with. We'll be sure to leave their contact info in our show notes. And even though this is our last episode of Control Click, we're not completely disappearing. We're archiving the website so all of our valuable content is still searchable and ready for reference on controlclickcast.com. And while the podcast is going away, Emily and I are still around. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you follow us on Twitter at Leia and at Emily Lewis. Again, before we go, another giant thank you to our listeners. You're the reason why our show lasted so long. Plus, many thanks to our Control Click Patreon fans for advocating and promoting our show. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. We love you all. This is Leia Alcantara. And Emily Lewis. Signing off for the last time on Control Clickcast. That's a wrap. Cheers. 